you know, we talk a lot about sustainability nowadays, right? In Philippine, the Philippine football setting, but um, a lot of the practices, and I put it quote and unquote best practices, um, if there is such a thing. Um, a lot of the best practices, and I won't even say that in a good way, all over the world in football, many of it is not sustainable, you know. Um, you look at how even clubs in the Premier League operate, many of them would operate at a big loss if they were given the choice. It's Friday, which means it's another episode of Across the Line. Today, we've got the great Kevin Goko on the program. He might float under the radar of a lot of the football fans out there, but this is a guy you need to know. Isn't that right, Chris? Yes, Kevin Goko. What can I say about him? One of the nicest guys in, in Philippine football. Uh, I've known him for a while. His involvement with the Gawa Kalinga project is how he and I initially um, got to know one another. And then he's been involved with futsal initiatives, recently come back from the FIFA Masters course. Um, really, really interesting outlook on the game as a whole, uh, and also has some really interesting ideas on how um, the football landscape should look here in the Philippines. So uh, I know he's, he's been very prominent on, uh, on the social media side and in the physical football world recently. Um, so yeah, for me, I think he's someone who the, the Philippine fans need to know a lot more of because he's someone with great insight, great knowledge and, and amazing ideas on how things should develop here in the country. We talk a lot about community building on this, on this show. We've done so for many episodes, but here's a guy who's on the ground implementing a lot of the things that we hope would be rolled out in a big way here in the Philippines from 10 schools that they started with, with uh, their program, Liga Escuela. They moved it up to 300. It's an incredible story. And he goes on in detail about some of the efforts that they've they've uh, put together uh, in spreading the game of football here in the country. And it's, yeah, man, I've been involved in the game for 10 years, Chris, and I've only met Kevin today. And uh, I hope there's 10 more Kevins out there in the Philippine community um, that are you know, are not looking for the attention, but are putting in the work, Chris. Absolutely. I think this one, like you said, it will fly under the radar of a lot of the Philippine football fans. But I think once you take the time to listen to what he has to say, um, you'll be like, man, I wish there were more of this guy, this type of person about, because he's someone who I think really has the Philippine football world at heart. Um, I think he has young kids trying to fulfill their potential at heart and, and we need more people like him involved with the game such a such a great guy and it's been a fascinating conversation we're on youtube spotify and on apple Podcasts. please please do subscribe to the show and if you enjoy this episode share it to a friend you really do appreciate it um, the more that you share it the more that you subscribe and comment uh it, it allows those platforms to know that you guys appreciate our content and it gets us out to more individuals like yourself um, you can find us on uh, social media as well we're on Facebook Twitter and on Instagram we'd appreciate uh, hearing from you there and without further ado we've got Kevin Goko on this Football Friday here on Across the Line enjoy how's it going Kevin you're joining us from Iloilo today how's it going over there it's going great man and uh, thanks for for having me on on the show um, it's always a pleasure to, to spend some time during the day to, to chat about football with with some like-minded peeps here so it's show. good. It's good. I mean, like Iloilo, um, it's pretty chill and laid back compared to Manila. And uh, just hearing about the news of how the situation is over there, um, I kind of prefer to be here at the moment. But um, 
I hope you guys are well, are doing good as well. So doing great, man. Ilo Ilo is a place that we're actually quite familiar with. Chris and I uh, spent quite a bit of time there in 2018 when Kaya first moved to Ilo Ilo. Nice place, beautiful people, and it's good to know that the situation is slightly better off over there. Good food. Uh, yeah, the, the food is <laughs> tremendous. The food is tremendous. Um, we have you here on the program today, and you've been quite um, uh, prominent on uh, the Facebook feeds, on Twitter. Uh, we've been seeing quite a bit of news about you, and uh, it's great to finally be able to speak to you here on the program. We're always interested in speaking with individuals who have a vision for Philippine football and, and progressing it further. And uh, when you uh, circulate around the community, there's your name that comes to the lips of many and speaking about how to move the game forward. So it's, it's fantastic to have you here. And I understand that you and Chris um, have been uh, familiar with one another for quite some time. Chris, what's the background with you and Kevin? Well, Kevin and, and I initially got together um, with the GK project, the Gabo Kalinga project. Um, He'd been involved with that community for um, for a number of years and had been working um, alongside some of their football coaches to uh, develop the football program. Uh, and then we sort of came across each other and found a way to mutually help each other out. Um, we, we didn't really expect it to blossom into what it is today uh, and to develop, you know, so many players that are now playing with the with the youth national teams and uh, within our academy with the hopes of becoming professional footballers, that was never really the, the mandate. It was just really just trying to find a, an opportunity for these kids to develop um, some of their skills a little further. Um, but now we've got a really, really strong pipeline of kids coming in from that community. And, and it's, been, uh, it's, it's been a really, really fruitful uh, endeavour for both of us. So that's how Kevin um, and I first met. I don't know if you have a different version or different rendition. Maybe yours is a little... Um, clearer than mine, but that's, that's pretty much how I recall our initial interactions. That's, that's pretty much how I remember it, Chris. You know, um, I was doing this thing with GK, and then I think we came across each other in one of the tournaments that, that Kaya was involved in. And then um, we just spoke about giving opportunities to these kids. And you're right, like, like at that time, it was just to give them a platform to play. And uh, who, who would have known that, you know, like some of these kids would be doing really well at this point and, and even playing on the national team, on the youth national team. So that's, that's great. Yeah. Man, that's, so that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so I mean, just obviously we're, we're all familiar with the Gawa Kalinga project and I think a lot of the people within our network probably are too. Um, but just maybe, maybe just if you could just give us a quick synopsis of what um, the Gawa Kalinga as, as a whole um, are about and then obviously what your involvement was on the, on the football side as well. Okay, so um, the Gawad Kalinga project, or I'll call it GK for short, so it doesn't sure. mean goalkeeper, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, no, no, because people make that confusion sometimes when, when uh, we talk about the Gawad Kalinga football program. But um, yeah, it's basically a nonprofit foundation that's into community development. And uh, when they say community development, they look at it from a holistic point of view. So... Um, there's housing there because um, you need to provide family shelter. Then once you provide them shelter, uh, you think about ways about giving them livelihood or empowering them to, to, to lead productive lives, right? So they also had an education program as well for the youth, health, um, feeding programs. So it's basically trying to tackle the uh, UN sustainability goals in one village. And this foundation over the years built uh, it's now, I think, well over 3,000 communities all over the Philippines. 
And um, my involvement came the fact that when I looked at these communities, they really had no sports program going on. And growing up as, as a kid who played football, basketball, and baseball, sports played a big part in my life. So I just wanted to give those kids uh, some structure, you know, to be able to lead positive lives because we all know that sports has a positive impact on everybody. And so uh, I, I took the sport that I love the most. The first sport I played was football. And um, we piloted in one community. And then uh, over the years, it, it has spread to about 31, I think, nationwide. Um, 10 of them are in Manila. Um, the most prominent one is in Mandaluyong. And um, I think there's over 2,800 kids now playing in the program. So uh, yeah, so that's basically what GK is. Wow, 2,800 you say, kids? 2,831, the last time I looked at it, to be exact, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Um, so you, you said you started playing football first of, of the many sports that you, you did play. Um, I'm actually quite interested in your background in the sport, and you're currently right now as well uh, the head of futsal in the PFF, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. So, gee, my, my background, um, so I, I grew up abroad. Right, because um, my parents were expats, were Filipino expats. So Where'd you grow um, up? I was born in Bang uh, mm. born in Bangkok, Thailand, and then I spent the first uh, seven years of my life in Indonesia. So, so I grew up in Jakarta, and that's how football became a big part of my life. Because in Indonesia, football is the number one sport, just like Indonesia. how the NBA and basketball is here. I mean, the fans are absolutely nuts about mm. the sport. I mean. Um, mm. I've never seen anything like it, you know? I mean, I've, I've seen games in Europe, but I tell them over there, you should see some of the games in Indonesia. It's, it's complete chaos and madness over there. So um, the passion is second to none. And that's how I, I, I started playing football at an early age. Then um, the family transferred to Hong Kong. And then Hong Kong being a former British colony um, was also uh, really into football at that time. So uh, just the, the Premier League was probably the most popular sport that kids would watch over there. And then um, after Hong Kong, I moved back to the Philippines and uh, just for high school, really. So I went to school in, in ISM. And uh, yeah, so, uh, but when I went to ISM, um, the thing is here in the Philippines, if they see that you're kind of athletic, you're kind of good in sports, the athletics office will kind of force you to play or gear you towards playing basketball. So. Um, I, I, I played more basketball in high school, but um, I also played football there. In fact, um, one of the teachers in, in ISM was the founder of Kaya, Bob, Bob, Bob Kovach. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, he, he, he was an interesting person, but um, he was one of the guys who always like, you know, at that time he would invite us to play, to play soccer with him. And um, they would play soccer in a, in a gymnasium with a, like an oversized tennis ball. And that was, I, I didn't know that those were the early days of Kaya. So um, yeah, so Bob Kovach was my teacher. Um, and, um, but I, I focused more on basketball than ISM in, in right. high school. Incredible. Um, we share a little bit of, uh, of history actually. Myself included, uh, was born here actually, but I grew up in, in Jakarta as well. Spent like oh, eight really? years there of my childhood, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, and then did, went back here for high school. In That's right. Yeah. Well, the elementary okay. version of that, Pondok in the elementary. But wow, yeah. uh, a, sim a similar trajectory there. Uh, and awesome that you were able to see the, the early days of Kaya. And you found yourself now in, um, in futsal. Um, how did that come about? Well, it was really by accident, you know. Um, 
I was saying like I, I was heavily involved with GK and when we were trying to promote football in GK, we realized that the, the, the difficulty was access to, to a pitch in the community because um, the most sustainable way to do it is if you have the kids play in, uh, in the community where they live or nearby. And um, many of the Gawad Kalina communities were far away from accessible pitches, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, when we first started out, we used to bring the kids all the way to Ateneo uh, to play on the field there. And then you'd talk about transportation costs, um, traffic at that time was even really bad. Um, and uh, it was just really difficult. So we decided, um, why don't the kids just play in the open spaces there in those communities? And usually the open space would be a basketball court or it would be a, a, covered, a covered area or an open, an open street lot where they can all play. And the largest that they can play was five aside. It would be three to five aside. So um, we saw that was a pretty sustainable way to have kids play, to have them fall in love with the game. And once they fall in love with the game, you can start showing them YouTube clips of, you know, the, the stars, you know, the, the big football stars, and they'd get into the sport. So they'd fall in love with the sport. And um, so, so that's how I got into that sort of format. And then you realize later on that the kids got really good. <laughs> I mean, just, just playing a small-sided football, uh, uh, number of touches that they have on the ball. Some of the kids became really technically good, or they do something that you've never seen a kid do in Alabang Country Club, you know, because their just imagination and creativity was just out of this world. So I thought, wow, there's really something in this format. So because of that, I was, I was a football guy prior to that, but I really started to learn more about futsal and how it helps in developing uh, overall the, the game of football. And um, I got involved with the public schools uh, through the Henry V. Moran Foundation. So this was after my time with GK. And yeah, uh, around 2017, um, they liked the stuff that I was doing in the PFF and they said like, why don't you just come on board and try to align some of the programs we have to, to what you're doing there. So that's how I got involved in futsal. Oh wow, so who approached you from the PFF? Um, it was the technical department, but I think it came from Nonong Araneta because um, the week before I was called into the office, uh, he attended one of our events that we held with the public schools. So we had a public school futsal event with uh, the Henry V. Moran Foundation mm-hmm. in Los Angeles Green Hills. So there were like a lot of kids there, a lot of schools participating. It, it was really a lot of fun. And then uh, Nonong happened to be uh, one of the attendees there. and. Apparently, he was really impressed with, with, with what he saw. So the next week, um, I was called into the, the PFF office, and um, they said, yeah, um, we, we want you to take on the uh, futsal program. It was kind of funny because uh, they had a projector screen ready in their boardroom. They had a presentation all set up, and then um, <laughs> they said, this is our futsal plan. This is what's happening in futsal. And I kid you not, the presentation had blank slides in it. So... Yeah. Like, what was their point, right? Their, their point was, um, you know, uh, we, we need somebody to come in here and sort of like reset the program and try to build it from scratch, basically. And when was that? What year was that? Uh, I think it was 2017, if not late 2016. Yeah. Wow. Um, Chris, we, we talk a lot about futsal on this show, um, about the potential that it has 
uh, in terms of development for football. And as you mentioned, Kevin, um, accessibility is the, the main culprit for uh, keeping a lot of kids out of the game and there's basketball courts everywhere. So futsal is definitely an avenue which can be used and, um, and maximized in order to get these kids uh, into the game. Uh, did you know about all these things, Chris, about um, uh, the, the efforts that Kevin has been uh, undertaking over the last few years? Yes, I knew the work he was doing with, um, with the Henry Moran Foundation. Um, is Danny his brother, Danny Moran? Is that his brother? Um, no, um, so that's his father. Okay, exactly. Yeah, sorry, that's right. That's his father. Sorry, I wasn't sure the connection. Yeah. I wasn't sure which one it was. But yeah, so Danny, uh, Danny was very good friends with um, Iñaki Vicente. They played on the national team together. I was mm -hmm. also with Donald Araneta. Um, so that's how we knew of, of them. Um, Danny helped us out with a couple of different projects with, with Kaya in the past. Um, so I was really aware of the stuff that he was doing. And, um, and I think it also tapped into a market that was quite underserved, that particular um, subset of, of players. Because I think there's a lot of work in Manila that, that goes towards, you know, helping people, I would say, from a more affluent background. Um, you know, with the YFL, uh, it, it, obviously for private football clubs. So, you know, you would need to either have access to funds to pay for the subscriptions or relationships like, like Kevin and I had with, with GK to, to enable some of those players to participate um, from more underprivileged backgrounds. Uh, and then, of course, you have the school. So the school system has a, has a relatively sound setup. I mean, obviously, it could be improved, but they have that, that group is catered for. I think the subset of individuals that, that you were catering for was a very different group, and it's probably a very underserved community. So I think that initiative was, um, was an excellent one. And it's something that we've been harping about for a long time, Jing, isn't it, on this show, is, is that although there are insufficient, there are, say, you know, official football fields, there are tons of unofficial football fields that can be utilised in the form of obviously basketball courts or um, you know, even concrete fields that you, would, that you could kind of uh, use as makeshift football pitches because that is how the majority of people, uh, for example, in South America, in the favelas, that's how they learn to play the game. And, and as Kevin alluded to, just the close proximity to the, to the opponent, to small spaces, it leads to... Um, so many more touches of the ball, that, that creative element is heightened. And I think certainly for the Philippines, it's something that um, we should be really focusing our attention on because that is, for me, where we are going to produce the most homegrown talent based on the, you know, the, the population that we have here in Manila and other large cities that we have throughout, um, throughout the Philippines, even though we have a dearth of, of facilities. My real question though, Kevin, is how is, how is the, the probe... Uh, progress being with that program because I know, I know you've been involved with it um, but, but how, how have some of the initiatives gone down uh, in that period that you've been working with the PFF? Well so um, this program that we have with the public schools so the underserved uh, sort of like market you were alluding to is really the public school system hmm. um, and if you look at their the way they're set up is they don't really have much support in terms of sports you know um, obviously basketball is a natural priority given how it's such a, a big sport here in the country. But even then, um, you see that there's very minimal support coming in to the school system for promoting sports. So if you come in with a program, most likely the schools would be very open to it, right? So um, you're right. Uh, we, we call the program Liga Escuela. Um, this is like the, the flagship program of, of the Henry V. Moran Foundation. And it was really sort of like uh, Danny Moran's way to try to promote the sports popularity 
and help develop football from the ground up. Um, so the first year uh, was really a pilot. We only started with 11 schools, right? Um, and this was just basically with schools or with, with teachers or principals that we had contacts within the community. Then after that first year, the teachers told their fellow teachers within their division in, in the Department of Education. And then it, it immediately ballooned to 68 schools on year two. Wow. Then on the third year, um, over 300 schools wanted to sign up. And we were just like blown away by, by, by the take up because we were asking ourselves, why is it that the schools really want to do this? Well, one, I alluded to the fact that they don't really have much activity going on in the public school system. And secondly, it's so easy for them to implement what we were trying to tell them to do. So what previous grassroots programs would do in football is, okay, let's take everybody to, to the pitch in the city. Let's have them play. Let's give them balls and then see you later after one week, right? This one was more of, okay, let's take the PE teachers. We're not going to make them coaches per se, but we're going to teach them to appreciate the game and to manage games with the kids within their school and to make sure that they're playing every afternoon. Or not every afternoon, but maybe, you know, if, if they can't do that, then maybe a few times a week within their school. So it was very sustainable because every public school has access to a basketball court, an open covered facility, where you can implement a, a, a five versus five, basically futsal format. And that's why the take up was so high because you, know, um, you don't really need much to start. Um, it's like, in fact, like some of the schools, they didn't have goals. So what they used was they used the, 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 the chairs or, or the desks, the school desks, and they just set that up and they just, just try to kick the ball through that. And that's how they would start. But um, you say, oh, okay. This, this, like nothing's really going to come out of this, but you know what? Um, after a few years, you'd see those kids who are kicking the balls through those two desks are actually quite good now. <laughs> I mean, if you look at them, I mean, um, they're, they're, they're quite good players. And that's why I'm such a believer of this futsal format because um, you really see over the years, the skills of the kids really improving. Um, the number of hours they spend on the ball, I think, is something that should not be understated at all. So the take-up was big. Then last year, um, the Department of Education, their central office, because um, this whole time we were dealing with uh, NCR in Metro Manila, the central office said, um, because of what you did in Metro Manila, we want to bring this Liga Escuela program to seven DepEd regions all over the Philippines. So we were currently doing that. Well, I wasn't because I was away for, for sabbatical on my master's, but um, it was going on and then COVID happened. So we had to stop um, the middle or, or early part of this year. So the plan was really to, to, to continue with this program and to roll it out to multiple locations yeah, throughout the yeah. Philippines. Yeah. And, and the good result of that was because of a lot of this work that was going on. Um, this year, DepEd would have made elementary school girls uh, futsal, a regular sport in the Palarong Pambansa. So, so they already approved that because they already saw that so many kids were playing. Um, the take-up is quite easy. Um, but that was unfortunately derailed by uh, the pandemic. And who's funding all of this, uh, Kevin? Who, who's provided the funds for this particular program? Or is it funded primarily by the schools, by the DepEd? How is this being well, funded? Well, DepEd gives um, some 
some support. I, I, I won't discount that, but majority of the funds come from um, the Henry V. Moran Foundation and its efforts in pooling funds together from different mm. individuals. So um, Danny is, from, is a graduate of La Salle. So a lot of the alumni from La Salle uh, would, would chip in there. Um, the MVP Sports Foundation is also supporting in, 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 in a small way. And uh, <clears throat> Danny himself as well. So it's, it's really different individuals. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's not really that costly. If, if you look at how much you're paying maybe per year to, uh, to a pro club, uh, if, you, if you compare the amounts, but um, it's still quite large because the intention is really to serve all communities, right? As much as possible. Um, but you have to do it in a sustainable manner. I mean, you, you can't just say, okay, we're going to serve everybody <laughs> tomorrow. So you, you kind of have to be careful in how you expand. This is incredible. Um, Chris, I, I don't know if you remember this, but we had a sit down when I was new at Kaya. Uh, we were speaking a little bit about the underserved uh, communities in mm -hmm. the country. And I was speaking a lot about public schools and that, you know, I see GK, I see um, the Don Bosco kids, some of the more underprivileged have teams. They're playing in the YFL, but you will never see any public school kids being exposed to the game. And it turns out Kevin here is a step ahead of everyone. And um, yeah. yeah, I definitely love to, to speak with you more later on about the specifics of how to implement this because you know, as, as being part of Kaya, this is something that we're very interested in doing as well, you know, and finding ways to not just, you know, not really develop the talent, but just to expose them to the game because then they'll appreciate the game better, right? As you said, it takes a few weeks or a little bit of time with the ball, at, attempting passes and dribbles before you can start YouTubing and appreciating the best players in the world, right? It, it takes a little bit of un, a knowledge of how difficult the game could be before you can be like, oh, wow, Ronaldo's really good. <laughs> or how do yeah, you get out yeah. of that tight space or whatever it is, right? So um, that's fantastic, you know? I mean, um, there's a lot of talk these days about the doom and gloom that surrounds Philippine football, right? Ten years after the miracle of Hanoi, where we could have been and where we are now are two separate things. And there's a lot of people who are throwing shade, um, blaming the PFF and all kinds of personalities for their shortcomings. These things are not known. Right. Uh, I suppose, you know, it's 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 uh, maybe a lack of distribution in terms of the communications of the PFF and letting everybody know that, hey, man, there's there's some great initiatives out there. And if you guys have 300 schools right now, what are you guys projecting over the next two, three years? Well, Seven regions um, to go into. Right? We, we haven't done a count in the region, so um, I'm pretty sure it's a lot more than that because the 300 is just in Metro Manila. Right. Um, so we, we haven't done a real actual count. So I can't really give you a figure, but for sure it's going to be like higher than that. And like um, how many kids are you guys, do you, would you know the numbers of like how many kids are out there in public schools that could potentially be turned into football? Um, um, I, think, I think the figure is 22 million. Jeez. Yeah. That's so that's, that's basically a country for, for some other nations, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, like, basically what I was trying to do was to, to, to apply the formula that we had with Gawad Kalinga and try to put it in a public school setting, you know, um, and see how, 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 how we can take it from there. And um, the Gawad Kalinga pro program, I think, works because, and especially in the way I like how it links with the Kaya Academy, you know, um, we, we, we give the kids the platform to learn to love and appreciate the game. 
Um, and then those who really want to be serious about it can have this platform in Kaya Academy to see how far that they can go. Mm. And so far it's been, you know, I'm, I'm really happy with, with some of the kids that, that, that have been developing in, in Kaya Academy. You, you, meant, you mentioned a little bit about um, the hiatus that you took, a sabbatical uh, that you took this year specifically. Uh, that was for the FIFA Masters program. Um, that was in the news quite recently, and that's how I kind of got turned on to you, um, was your completion of that, graduating with honors, uh, being one of only five individuals from Asia to be a part of this program. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it, could you give us a little bit of a background and perhaps you know, the highlights of what you learned over there? Well, okay, so the FIFA Master Program is a uh, master program that was initiated by FIFA together with CIAS. Um, this, it's the International Center for Sports Studies based in Switzerland. And they launched this uh, 20 years ago, uh, 2000, because I'm on the 20th edition. And the intention was just to develop really good sports administrators for the football industry. And, um, you know, uh, we actually had some Filipinos who graduated from this course previously. So um, I know Vincent Santos um, graduated from that course early years. Um, Miguel David, um, AFC before. And there is a Filipino Japanese guy, like I forgot his name, but he's, he's, he's now working with AFC. Um, and then and I'm, I'm the fourth one, right? So I, I knew about this program. Um, they have really good alumni, like some former players that took it, like Park Ji Sung was, was a recent uh, attendee three, of, of three the park, course. Three Lungs Park, huh? Yeah, yeah, Three <laughs> Lungs Park. Um, so I, I just wanted to level up my knowledge. And so I, I applied to the program because I feel like um, that's, that's something that we need for here for Philippine football to really succeed is, is to know, it's, it's just, to, just to gain knowledge and see what works out there, right? Not saying what works out there will work here because our situation is, is quite different from other countries, but um, I wanted to learn, so I applied. Um, and then the selection committee said, we like the work that you did with Gawad Kalinga. That's, that's, that's really unique. It's non-traditional. It's a different way of doing it. So we want to give you scholarship. I was like, whoa, shit, that's great. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, I'm, I'm, so, like, mind you, I'm married with kids, right? But then I said, I'm not going to turn down an opportunity for a free education in this. So um, I, with the AFC scholarship, all I needed was an endorsement from the PFF. Um, I spoke to Mr. Araneta about it, and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll gladly write uh, an endorsement for this program. And I, I started it last September, actually. Nice. So the FIFA Master Program, it's three modules. The first module, they offer it in uh, De Montfort University in Leicester. And um, it uh, supposedly has the best humanities or sports history program in the UK. And um, they basically, in, in that module, you just learn everything about the humanities of sports. So it's not just football, which is a good thing about this FIFA Masters that they try to expose you to how basketball was developed, how volleyball was developed, how tennis was developed even rugby and cricket, because they feel very strongly that um, you can't have a very narrow-minded view of how one sport developed. You have to know how all the different sports um, took off, right? So you learn about the history, sociology, humanities side, um, international relations, and that's the first module. That's from September to December. And then starting in January until March, 
uh, you take up sports management in the University of Bocconi in Milan, um, Italy. So there you learn everything about um, finance, how to value a club, you know, those types of things, mm. um, how, how, how clubs operate from a business point of view. And again, just like the first module, you're not just studying football, you're also looking at how the NBA does things. How does the NFL um, do, do their business uh, in a sustainable manner? And then you also learn stuff about UEFA financial fair play. Like, like the, does that really work? Does it? You know, I mean, <laughs> this is like, there's a big debate about that. And then um, fortunately in March, the COVID pandemic hit. So um, I had to rush home from Milan back here to the Philippines. And, and one of the reasons why I was in, I'm, I'm now in Iloilo is because Manila was in lockdown already. So I actually found a flight from Geneva to Cebu. <laughs> Because Cebu was the, air, the only international airport that was open. And then I managed to find my way over to, to Iloilo. But, um, so the rest of my course was online. And the third module has to do with everything about sports law. So, man, it's all about player regulations, um, how to bring disputes on players not getting paid to, to cast, right? Mm, um, interesting. Some of the issues we see here locally. And so <laughs> yes. it's, it's everything about law. And then, um, yeah, um, throughout those three modules, you're also expected to write a thesis. And um, yeah, I was just fortunate enough to just finish it last July. What, what, what was your thesis on? <laughs> it was racism in football. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So we picked that topic early on because uh, at, at that time, it wasn't really a hot topic, but then once we started approaching the end of the year with the Black Lives Matters and all, and all the stuff that was going on all over the world, it actually became a, a very relevant topic. In fact, you know, some of the senior people in FIFA have reached out to me and were like, can we see your thesis? Can, can we talk about it a bit more? Because um, my thesis was all about how do you regulate all the racism that goes on in football and using online platforms to, to do that. So that brings up a lot of issues about data privacy, et cetera. Mm. But um, we found out that FIFA was actually thinking about doing the same thing. Um, we, we learned, we learned from them that they were thinking along the same lines on how to regulate a lot of the racist stuff that goes on um, online among fans. Yeah, which unfortunately is a lot. You don't have to go very yeah, far. Yeah, to, to it's see a lot. It. In it's 2020, a lot. who knew huh? that it would still be a thing, but uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a hot button issue um, as of late, but congratulations on, on being able to, to accomplish your, your master's in football, or it's more than football, actually, right? As you mentioned, it's humanities and sports, sports management and sports law. So you've come out of this um, better equipped for the, the Philippine football world, um, which finds itself in a kind of a tricky spot as of the moment, right? Um, COVID has, has transpired and now we're lucky that somehow, some way, the PFL have found a way to conduct operations again. And it looks like we're just about three weeks away from the start of the new league. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. That's so great. <laughs> that's a nice little develop here, de development here in Philippine football. And, and speaking of unpaid wages, this one's breaking news, Chris. Um, Global has just been banned by the Games and Amusement Board from operating um, because of those... Uh, um, allowances and salaries that they, they owe. So now they are 
disallowed alongside Mark Jarvis from being able to conduct any form of uh, operations in the world of football um, indefinitely until they, they settle their case. So there. Um, there. There we go. They're, they're nervous about people like Kevin and their you know, legal nous they've acquired and uh, you know, they know they have to act accordingly. And uh, I think- Yeah, just, uh, just wondering, like, like, maybe, like maybe Chris, you can answer this, but do we have a players association? No, we don't, Kev. Um, we should, man. Uh, there was there was there was kind of rumors and uh, murmurs around trying to get it set up. There was like a loose, there was like a loose organized, uh, loosely organized group of players, and then it and then it fell flat. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, maybe you'll be able to allude to it a little bit more, having been on the course. But you know, I know for me, when I grew up in, growing up in the UK, the the PF, um, the PFA were really prevalent in assisting uh, young professional players, um, obviously players within the game, but then retired footballers with all manner of different um, uh, things ranging from, you know, if people suffer from uh, alcohol abuse, uh, physical racial abuse, as you alluded to, you know, that they were like a point person who you could go and speak to independent from your club. Um, you know, they're great with setting up players with um, coaching courses or, um, uh, work experiences so they can help get on to their second careers when they finish um, their, their football day. So now it, it's something that we've tried to do and then obviously dealing with such um, you know regulatory issues that, that we've experienced, all experienced here in the Philippines. I think it's something that's needed but um, yeah maybe your, your friends in the PFF might be able to, to, to help set that but, up. But is it because of the laws here in the Philippines? Like they, they, they don't like unions? They, they're telling you guys not to because I think there's a lot of value in it because I, when I look at the news, you know, just online and I read about players complaining about unpaid wages through the media and the press, um, there's actually a process on how to go about these things, you know, before going to the media and starting to air out um, grievances. Um, so, so I was just wondering. It's, no, you know, it's, it's, on it, honestly, fun. Kevin, it's um, speaking from experience, maybe we'll talk about this another time, but it's extremely difficult to try to, um, to try to navigate that landscape, believe me. So, um, yeah, I, I would love to have seen a player union. There were so many things um, as a player that I experienced that, was, that, that had to be dealt with as players which shouldn't have been dealt with by the players, with the national team. Either, even, you know what, even the UFL, PFL days, you know, having to play at ridiculous times when the, it, was, it was, you know, excruciating heat. You know, you, under normal parameters, you would never be allowed to play in you know, 120 degrees Fahrenheit at, you know, two o'clock at yeah. McKinney Hill, for example. Like, there were certain um, guidelines to health and safety that, that need, needed to be abided by, and they just aren't, they just weren't at that time. So, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think the welfare of, of players is something that is overlooked, and it's probably something you're quite hot on because of, you know, your experiences with, with your masters. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Kevin. It's, it's something that needed to be, needs to be looked at. Yeah. Uh, here well, well sorry to digress, because I, you know, the most important stakeholder, I think, in any league are the players, first and foremost. If they're not being taken care of. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, what, what were some of the other things that you found out, I mean, on that course? Because what, what I'm always interested in is, you know, like, for example, when I came back for my A license, like, I felt there was an obligation that the stuff that I learned on that course, you needed to share, you need to impart that knowledge, like, with your coaches, with other players. Um, because especially in somewhere like the Philippines, it's it's quite hard, I think, to 
um, to obtain information, were quite insular um, here in the Philippines. Uh, England, England was the same. It was, it was you know, there sort of imperial um, mindset of, of, of the UK, but I think so often when information comes from the outside, it's, it's not well received. I think being an island nation, I think sometimes that doesn't help. So I'm always very mindful of when I do acquire knowledge or think I acquire some knowledge, I try to impart that knowledge and share that as, as, as best I can. And what are some of the key things from that course do you think is, is a really important messages? I mean, you obviously alluded to some of it there with perhaps your know, player welfare, but what are some of the other key things that you think are really important messages that you need to, to spread um, throughout the Philippine football community that you learned from that course? Well, I learned first and foremost that, um, you know, we talk a lot about sustainability nowadays, right? In Philippine, the Philippine football setting, but um, a lot of the practices, and I put it quote and unquote best practices, um, if there is such a thing, um, a lot of the best practices, and I won't even say that in a good way, all over the world in football, many of it is not sustainable. You know, um, you look at how even clubs in the Premier League operate, many of them would operate at a big loss if they were given the choice. Um, and that's why UEFA had to come in with financial fair play to make sure that, you know, clubs are not going crazy with their spending. Um, because, you know, like owning a football club, as I'm sure you know, Chris, or... Um, any other viewers out there, it's, it's a massive ego trip to say that you're an owner of a club. I own this club, we won this cup, etc. So given that, the temptation to overspend beyond your budget is very, very, is very, very high, right? So you, you kind of need to have a way to control this. And, you know, uh, a lot of people are complaining, oh, you know, there's the sustainability issues here locally, but it's happening in, in, in other countries as well. You talk to my classmates, they come from countries where the league is just funded by one guy, meaning you know, he's ceding the funds to all the other clubs. Um, it looks sustainable because they're playing, players are getting played, but um, if you trace the dots on where the money's coming from, um, I wouldn't consider that to be sustainable at all. You know, um, And it's very rare to have, so the, ideal club right that's sustainable everyone talks about is is like manchester united for example because they're so successful commercially but that took time to build and they operate those huge debts as well they yeah, have yeah, humongous debts well. yeah but you know um in terms of like the revenues that they bring in they bring in a lot of revenues because they're very good at keeping a hold of fans right the fan loyalty and fan engagement is quite high and you see that there's this gap developing between the big clubs that keep on growing in fan base, growing and growing, and those smaller clubs in, in, the, in the smaller leagues that are, that are struggling to, 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 to grow their revenues. So, I mean, um, what I learned is that the gap is getting bigger between the, the clubs that have and the clubs that don't have much. And um, really we have to think of, and I don't have the answer to this, um, what's a sustainable model. I don't think anybody has an answer right now, you know, to make things more sustainable and more equitable in, in, in the football world. Because I, I spoke to my classmates. I have classmates from South America, from Africa, from all over the world, you name it. And the general sentiment is the same. Um, you know, uh, how do we address this gap and how do we make football more sustainable and, and, and more equitable across the spectrum? How do we do that here? 
is my is my next question. So I guess across the game is different. Like I totally I totally get where you're coming from. You know, I look at the the Premier League for example, and it's just it's just a juggernaut. It's a behemoth. It's it's just such a well-oiled machine. And yeah, while you can question some of the things that the practices that they are implementing at the end of the day, the money's coming in, the revenue's coming in from various different streams. Um, and that has no sign of letting up. But what about in terms of sustainability here? Like, this is something that we are massive on on this show, is obviously trying to highlight ways in which you can make it more sustainable. Like, what is your viewpoint on how the game could be more sustainable? Not just necessarily at the professional level, but maybe across the board, even including grassroots level. Well, you, you know what, Chris? I, I really, to be honest, I don't have like a silver bullet solution here. I mean, if, if I did, I'd probably be telling other people in the PFF or maybe su giving respectful suggestions. Um, but uh, how to make the game more sustainable here, it's tough, man, because um, a, a key element is the fans, right? So I guess um, part of the solution has to do in how do you market the game a little bit better? How do you make the game more accessible to fans, right? Um, I mean, I mentioned, like, I watched some of the Kai Ilo Ilo games, right? When, 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 when you used to play the matches here. And the experience for me, to be honest, was really, for lack of a better word, was shit. I mean, because I want to support Kaya. I want to support you. I want to support some of the players I know. But the stands were so far from the pitch. Mm -hmm. And there was no atmosphere there. And then on the other side of the pitch, you have people swimming in the swimming pool. So, I mean, I think the... the People have to think about how to make it more fan friendly, you know, um, make it more accessible, make it good for, t for television because nothing is worse than showing a game where there are no fans. That's just the worst thing you can do. No sponsor is going to want to hop on the boat um, if, if they see a game where there's any portion where you see empty fans. So that's maybe uh, one way to tackle it, but um, and how to do it. It's, it's difficult because nowadays um, you talk about trying to get fan attention from a group of people who have fragmented attention spans, right? So people have less time now for leisure activities. And let's face it, if you're a top football fan or you're crazy about football here in the Philippines, most likely, I'm not saying for all, most likely the first league you'll look to follow is the EPL, right? And then maybe La, La Liga. You know, and then, well, if you're more of a hard, hard, hardcore fan, then you would say, no, I'm, I'm hardcore Kaya, like over those things. But um, speaking to my mates who follow football, who follow the PFL, top of mind is always EPL and, and La Liga. Oh, and if I have time, okay, I'm, I'm going to head over and watch a, a PFL game. But it's hard because of the traffic situation. People have less and less time nowadays. And the COVID pandemic just really complicated matters, right? So... Really, Chris, I, 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 don't have, I don't have a solution or model. I mean, um, and if somebody says they did and it hasn't been implemented, they're probably, you know, yeah, whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's quite interesting that um, the lack of fans is something that sponsors look at. That's, that's 100%, right? But now there are no fans in any sporting event around the world. And I guess it's an opportunity for the PFL to sort of be like, okay, it's not weird that there's nobody in the stands right now, all right? That's normal. Um, I mean, who knows if COVID happened, whether there would be fans anyway. But now we're just like every other league uh, around the world. So it's an opportunity perhaps to match everybody else and start from scratch. And as you said, 
how do you get them back into uh, get them into the stadium when there isn't a unique experience that that, that they are taking in right and uh, venues uh, in the in the country aren't exactly top notch it's not something that you would see at the king power stadium or wherever else around europe right there's always a track there's always decades old bathrooms that you have to deal with so it's not ideal but uh hopefully uh, somewhere down the road the, these things will change and that's something that I, that I, perhaps I'm, I'm quite interested to ask you right i mean you're around football and personalities from all over the world they'll ask you no doubt what's it like in the philippines what's football like in the philippines what do you tell them about the state of the game right now um well, I tell them that, you know, um, from my experiences, really, um, that's the only thing I can really speak of is from my experiences in, uh, in Gawad Kalinga and um, the community-based model that I'm, I'm really an advocate of is building the game from the ground up, you know. Um, that's not the only way to go about it because um, there, are, there are other ways to tackle development. But for them, um, you know, I, I tell them that, for example, in the futsal space, there are a lot of girls playing futsal here in the Philippines. So they find that, that to be very unique. Mm. Um, in fact, for some countries to even have girls play football is something very new for them, you know. Um, and I think my classmates are quite impressed with how gender equal we are as, as, as a people, you know. We're, we're, they're, they're quite impressed with how we have games in, 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 in the women's game. So what do you see? Let's say, I don't know, five years, right? We've been 10 years removed from the explosion of football. Um, how do you foresee things going about in the next five years? Next five years? It's going to be tough, to be honest. And um, I'm saying this coming from where we are right now with the whole situation. I mean, it's not just football, but in terms of the economics with the pandemic, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, I have a business right now. It's not exactly doing great. I'm fortunate enough that it's just making enough to get by, but I've never seen anything like this where revenues have just dropped this much. Yeah. And it's because if you speak to your customers and your clients, you know, a lot of them got laid off, unfortunately, and they're tightening their belts. So I think we're in for tough times and um, really don't know where, where, where this is going to bring us in terms of sports. And the next five years is going to be highly dependent on how we deal with the challenges we have right now. No? Right. Um, you know, I, I, I actually have a friend who also works for the NBA and they were saying financially, they're, they're, they're also on the edge. And, you know, and that's the NBA, which is quite, quite a successfully run league. You know, um, they were saying if, if God forbid, there's an outbreak of COVID among the players in their, in their bubble, their NBA bubble, then that's probably going to be the end of them, you know? Mm. Um, so um, it's, it's tough times. And um, the picture before COVID, I mean, I know the game is experiencing a lot of challenges um, in terms of how to market itself a bit better, how to get more fans in. Um, so it was already challenging before COVID and the COVID situation, it just accelerated it further. Um, you look at Ceres, like, like who would have thought that Ceres would have said 
or would have pieced out, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's tough, man. I mean, <laughs> it's okay, right, to say to say you don't have an answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. yeah I, I think the other thing with that, Kevin, and it's sort of going back a little bit to some of the stuff that you've been involved with. I think this this scenario, I think, hopefully, will trigger the innovators. It will trigger trigger the the people with you know real clarity, real vision, uh, to come to the fore and think of solutions. I know you say you haven't got solutions, so maybe we put you on the spot a little bit. But like I'm looking at it from the perspective of right, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for people to I think to gain confidence to get out on an eleven aside field. Certainly within the next twelve months, I just think it's going to be difficult. I think people are going to find it hard to um, relinquish the control. Uh, and put their kids out on a training field when it could be 50 kids on the training pitch and just think it's going to be very difficult. So you know, something like a futsal might have an opportunity to capitalize on, on that type of scenario. Do you know what I mean? An because another thing, Chris, that I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. I forget what, what came up in the studies that was like, everyone was saying the next big thing was, was esports. We talked about that a lot, man. And um, uh, I know FIFA is really putting a lot of effort into having member associations organize their own national esports teams you know um so you know just just to answer that question earlier from jing like like what can we get or or your question chris what sort of innovations can come out of mm -hmm. this i think there can be an innovation in esports because um fifa is really bullish on this um you know they even organize a fifa e-world cup you know as wow. one of their major events and they're really asking i know they're going around every member association I'm pretty sure they've already asked the PFF, do you want to put up an esports team? Do you want to put up a FIFA team? And that's one way to engage fans right now while they're just sitting at home and they can't play, right? I mean, the YFL have done it. The YFL have done yeah. it, Kev. You know, we had a YFL uh, esports. I think Anton's done stuff within esports as well. I think it's one that it scares me, if I'm quite frank, because, <laughs> you know, I don't want to have all my kids, you know. They don't need much training from me. You know, if they're going to be, uh, if they're going to be training for uh, an E-World Cup. Kyle you know, will have an esports team, Chris. Maybe I'll be, a, yeah, maybe I'll be an A-licensed, you know, uh, FIFA 2025 instructor or something. I don't know. Like, I, um, but I, I do think, yeah, that there is an opportunity there somewhere. I think, and I think the, the forward thinking individuals will come through this and, and will be okay. And I think something like futsal will be, will be a great one to, um, to try to capitalize on, on, on that type of scenario. You know, I think people are going to be there. I think it's been hard to form teams, Kev. I've thought about this long and hard. I think it's been very hard for a lot of youth clubs, youth teams, schools to get the numbers to form 25-man rosters. Yeah. I think it's going to be very difficult. I think there's a lot of people whose parents are going to be like, look, let's just, you know, let's just, you know, be conservative on the next couple of years and maybe hold off on the sports side of things while we focus on the academics. And that could, you know, provide an outlet. Look, we haven't got enough for an 11-a-side team, but we still want our kids to play football. What's the alternative? You know, and I would hate for them to go and just, you know, up sticks and play a completely different sport, you know, like a similar experience to what you had at IS. You know, I, I think it, there, is a, there, is a, there is definitely benefits in playing multiple sports, but I'd hate for football just to drop off the face of the, uh, of the earth here in the Philippines and not have that as an option. So, you know, I, I definitely think there needs to be that sort of dynamic uh, and uh, sort of fluid outlook when it comes to football and, and find different solutions to, um, to this particular problem. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and going back to that Liga Escuela program I was talking about, one of the reasons why it, it, the take-up was so high was because you didn't, as you were saying, you didn't require a lot of players on the squad. You can have 10, 10 to 15, and you can have a full, a full squad already to play, for sure. Yeah, so I'm just trying to foresee some of the things. I definitely think it's going to be a gradual process. I think there is going to come a day, you know, in the future, near future, hopefully, where, you know, we can all go to Alabama Country Club. You know, we can all, you know, enjoy a full afternoon of, of football with, you know, loads of kids playing and, and not be so wary of the, of the COVID issue. But I do think that's a while. I do think that's a while away. And, and I'd hate for kids, you know, I look at someone like Sian Galson, for example, like he's on the cusp right now. You know, he's, uh, you know, 15, 16 years old. You know, he's really ready to make that, you know, these years are really big big years for him. You know, and I'd hate for him to waste two years, three years while he waits for, you know, a vaccine or, where, you know, he's nervous training in, you know, small pods and, and he can't continue his development because he's someone who we've seen, he's on the track. He's on the track for something big in football and you'd hate to see someone like him be derailed um, you know, at a really pivotal moment in his career. So I think we, we need to try to find a way to help people yeah. at age range, you know, I'm talking specifically kind of 14 to 16 year olds, you know, who, who can't afford to waste, you know, two years of their career, um, you know, while, while we try to find a solution to this because that, that will just be catastrophic for them down the line. Yeah, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very happy with, with CN's development. Did you know he was selected by AFC to be a youth? I ambassador? saw that. Talk, talk about it, Kev. I'd love to hear your, um, your, your perspective on it because I think that's a massive story. Yeah, so, so basically um, the AFC, and, and I'm helping them out in this program, the AFC has a social responsibility program. Um, they tied up with a Jordanian group, a Jordanian foundation called Aurora. And the, basically the whole point of this program was the AFC wanted to identify in each member association, um, outstanding individuals who play for the youth national team, but who can just go beyond their impact on the pitch, but off, off of it as well. Um, so the PFF nominated um, four individuals, and they selected three, and, and CN was one of them. So CN will be joining a network of youth national team players from all over Asia. And they're just going to be discussing about how as youth, they can take the game forward, but also use the game to make an impact in their countries. So I, I think it's a tremendous honor for everyone involved in this development from starting from Gawad Kalinga up to Kaya Academy, because, you know, um, it just speaks well of him as a person and as a leader. That's incredible. How old is he in? Would uh, you know? I think he's 15, 15. right now. 15, turning 16 this year, right? He's 16 this, this year. He, is he the guy who bites? Yeah. Different fella. Uh, same group. No, Julian Romero is the one who cycles yeah. to, to, to training. Yeah, Sian, um, Sian was involved with the youth uh, under 15 national team last year. Um, Captain of our uh, under 15 squad moved up to under 17s this year. Just real... Standout performer, uh, has, was one of the first guys who came through our program as, I think he must have been 12 maybe, uh, Kevin, something like that. So he's been with us for four or five years now. And just, yeah, yeah, I think not 12 just a, years old. Yeah, so not, not just a really outstanding footballer, but a really, really good person. And um, 
yeah, really proud of all of the achievements and is definitely someone who we're looking forward to see again blossom into uh, you know achieving all of the goals and aspirations that he has for himself because he's on he's definitely one he's on the right track so yeah that that particular um program i think is a, is a great feather in both of our caps and i'm really interested to see yeah. how it develops on that i course. mean like like cian before he started playing with kaya was really uh street football and futsal up until the age of 12 um and then when he played with kaya that's how he sort of developed his skills on, on the football pitch his understanding of, of how to play the game so I think, you know, that's one model that, that we can look at just based on our experience on how to develop the youth here in the Philippines, right? And, you know, we're talking about youth, the majority of the youth who don't come from affluent backgrounds, you know? So, so CN definitely is not from a very affluent family, in fact. Um, in fact, he, he bites as well, but he bites to deliver pizza um, because oh, wow. his, his dad makes pizza. Yeah. So in order for the family to get by, um, he, he bikes around their neighborhood and he delivers pizza to people. It keeps him fit, but it also helps out in the family. So, um, yeah, I mean, like definitely those, those you, you want to give opportunities to those kids, right? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it's good to see that, you know, futsal is probably going to be more accessible, hopefully, down the road for more individuals in, in, in public schools, more young individuals. Do you see that? Uh, growing to such an extent that there'll need to be like a pro league for futsal down the road or um, perhaps youth national teams for futsal? Is that something that's in the pipeline in your plans? Yeah, so, so next year um, we're, we're going to start a youth national futsal team, but starting with girls um, because um, from our assessment, um, the girls are a low-lying fruit because they're, they're, it's already an official sport in depth ed. Independ palarong pambansa, no, and um, because you already have girls playing, the natural step for them is to go to university and play futsal. We don't really have a, a solid university futsal league, but that's something we have to work on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like further down the line, definitely there should be some competition there for those who have graduated from university or are playing in the open leagues. No? Um, yeah. I kind of hesitate to say professional because. Even in futsal, most of their leagues, if you look all over the world, are semi-pro. Right, you know? right. um, many leagues, except for maybe Spain and Brazil, have reached to that point where you can say that, well, we're a full-on professional futsal league. Right? Mm. But definitely, like, like that's in the plans. But the, the way we want to approach it is to develop slowly from the ground up. So when I came on board, I was like, screw the national teams in futsal. We're not going to send one until... You have a program backing it up and, and, and you're ready, you know? Um, because the last time we sent a national team, we got massacred and embarrassed. Um, and you, you don't want to do that again. It's not fair for the players. It's not fair for the coaches. It's not fair for, for, for stakeholders. So, um, you know, uh, we want to do it the right way. And that's from the community engagement model that, that, that I know or, or have experienced by. Do you think it's possible to be picked up and how should you say, I want the word that's in my mind right now is mass produced, but more like um, doled out in, in, in a more general fashion, in a larger scale, um, being able to enter these communities. Do you think that's possible? Perhaps utilizing the clubs that are uh, in the PFL. I mean, they're mandated to be part of communities um, through their licenses with the PFF. So do you think that's possible? Do you think it's, 
to to hasten sort of the progress of immersion into the communities? Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, uh, I think it's definitely something that can work together with. Um, I don't know what the mindset of most of the clubs now in the PFL. I think for many, the mindset is just to survive and grow themselves into sustainable enterprises, right? Um, so um, there's, there's a lot on their plate now. And I would perfectly understand if it's like, you know, they, they don't want to think about that at this point in time. Mm. Um, but definitely, yeah, it, it, it can help. And I think if you use the DepEd, the, the Department of Education platform, that's probably the best way to go massive. Mm. That's the best way to go to massive. Um, if, you know, things don't go back to normal anytime soon, Chris, I saw this piece of news recently. Um, there's this kid, he showed his bank account of $500,000 playing Dota 2. So um, e-games might be the way to go, huh, Chris? Maybe, maybe you should start getting your licensure for uh, teaching FIFA 25 or Tell something. What, I, think, I, think, I think Kevin's you really... You working out those fingers, Chris. That's it, mate. I think you've, you struck a chord with me, mate. You definitely struck a chord. I'm thinking now I'm going to have a bunch of uh, phone calls once this uh, podcast is released. And listen, Chris, sorry, but we've, we've heard that Esports is the way forward, and we're gonna we're gonna ditch Kyrosy Academy unless you form some sort of e e program for for the for the girls and boys. But now, listen, Kev, it's it's been it's been really interesting talking to you today. Like, I I love the the the, um, the sustainability theme that you've got. Again, we keep harping on about it, and we keep coming back to this on our show. I think it's really really important and. You know, I know, I know why Jing asked that question at the end because because uh, he feels so passionately about just being able to feed into those communities as being the basis for everything else to blossom um, for any club, not just our club, not just Kaya, not just the academy. Like that really is the key to all this because otherwise, what are we building? We're just building teams, you know, and that's not what football's about. Football's not about building teams. It's about building communities. And I think, you know, we have got people within football here in the Philippines that are keen to develop football communities, um, none more so than yourself, which is really why we wanted to get you on the show, because I think you've, you've, you've done it in such a beautiful way. Um, and that's and where Chris, it, the fans come from. And that's exactly what the point I'm trying to make, Kev. That is where the fans come from. That is where your pipeline of players come from. That's where the genuine bona fide affinity to your organization comes from. It's not from you just plonking up at a locale and, you know, given a free t-shirt or a free ticket to the game. If the fan experience is poor, if you don't cultivate that relationship, if you don't um, go into the communities and coach those kids, um, the brothers, the sisters, whoever within those, those communities, that you're not going to have a long-lasting impression. And then you're not going to have, as you said, people who fall in love with the game. And that's what it's actually going to take because at the moment it's a very superficial um, attraction with sport is, is what I feel right now. And, I, and we're going on about the, the, the 2010 thing. I think that probably was what, what the initial spark was. It was that superficial attraction, whether it was... The, 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 the physical attraction, whether it was the um, affinity with the team, right? They know the, the fairy tale story, the fact that we went to Vietnam and we beat the bad guys, whatever that might be. But it's superficial. There needs to be something that grounds everybody um, to the sport. 
And unless kids fall in love with it, unless the parents love watching their kids play, unless they feel that affinity with the club, with the organisation, then it's just not going to be sustainable. And I think that's why you've probably seen a lot of growth, I mean, rapid growth within um, some of the initiatives that you've um, championed, because I think it comes from a good place and it comes from a place of, look, this is why we try to do it. And this is why we try to help you, uh, you know, provide a better opportunity for yourself or provide a better life for yourself. Um, and I think that's where you've, you've managed to get growth and, and that's where you're going to get the sustainability. Um, we've obviously seen it with our relationship with the GK kids, but that, and then we were, you were starting to see it with your futsal program, but unfortunately, you know, situations change. But I think if more people had your mindset, Karen, I think then we would be in a, in a much better place within, um, within the football world. But I'm really glad that you came on and spoke about it because I think if, if we do create these types of models, and you talk about it very specifically in terms of models, I think uh, the community can grow. I think there's certainly scope yeah. for that. It's just like, you know, when, when the game was starting out, and I just learned this last year, right? Um, speaking of what I learned last year, is how the game really took root in England. It was community-based. Mm -hmm. It started out in pubs. Mm -hmm. It started out in factories. Yep. It was very amateur. And it took time to develop to the point where you can start paying those players. But once they had a pro league, you already had fans flocking to, to the, 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 the tribunes or the grandstands, mm -hmm. but that took time. And it started with the factories. That's why you had clubs called Sheffield Wednesday because they played every Wednesday, mm -hmm. right? That's why kickoff time is 3.30 because 3.30 is when they clock out from, from, from work and from the factory. So um, what's, what's the point here? It, it, it started in the community. And I think, okay, if, if there's one model that we should promote more here, it's probably more community-based models here in the Philippines. Whereas you're saying, Chris, where we really engage the fans and stakeholders in the community to really buy into and love the game. Definitely so much to learn from this episode. It's been tremendous being able to speak with you. And uh, for me personally, to meet you for the first time, Kevin, it was a real pleasure to have you on for the last hour or so. How do people find you online? If they want to ask you questions, if they want to, interact i'm not sure if you want that but if, 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 if you'd like that um how do people find like, i was actually quite taken aback when when chris messaged me like uh can you come on the show I was like, i'm just holding up here in Iloilo, man but, um, yeah um yeah if they they, they want to talk I'm, I'm 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 an open book i'm an open source you know um anytime, twitter Instagram, um, do you, you want to promote your handles or anything like that? Or do we just look Kevin no, no, Goko? Kevin just, Goko. Uh, just private message me on Facebook or, or Instagram. There it is. There it is. Kevin Goko on Across the Line, man. It was, it was really, really fun to have you on on this uh, Football Friday. Uh, if you guys enjoyed this episode with Kevin, please do subscribe to the show on YouTube, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. And we look forward to having all of you back on the next Football Friday. Thank you for watching or for listening to this show. <laughs>